We're in 1 John chapter two. Scroll to or turn to 1 John chapter two as we continue our study of John's epistles this summer. I am not a, a student of art. I have very little knowledge in any kind of important way, helpful way of, of art. But a few years ago, I was at the National Gallery of Art up in DC and I was captivated by a series of paintings, of four paintings called The Voyage of Life by Thomas Cole. Um, depictions of um, starting with a, a little boy in a boat and setting out on a river journey with just this great sense of excitement and anticipation and then sort of tracking through the four scenes of his life, depicting his adolescence, manhood, and ending with an old man in a battered boat who is looking heavenward as he approaches the end of life. The third in that series is the artwork that you see on the screen, and it's the same, that's the background for the series that we're on. It is the, the stage of manhood. Uh, it shows a man, as you can see, who is headed into turbulent waters. He is moving into a time when there will be all sorts of trials and challenges in his adulthood, and yet on the other side of the rocks, uh, there is this um, calm waters and, and beautiful sunset that, that still lies on the other side. Um, he is kneeling in the boat. He is in a posture of prayer. And now I know art is subject to interpretation. I know that you could ding me for liking a series of art that shows a guardian angel in each one and have different views on guardian angels. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. I've always been drawn to this series, and in fact, it, it was in my office. I've had it on the, the wall in my office, and I appreciate Pastor Stewart uh, when we were talking about this assurance series, um, picking that to, to use. He does all of the, the, the graphic stuff. Because to, to me, when I see this, I see a guy who is looking heavenward, who is looking up, who is putting his trust in divine providence, in the providence of God, and who is seeking God's help, and seems to, by faith, be assured of, of God's care, God's direction, God's leading through life, and knows that God has not abandoned him. That message of assurance is central to this book of 1 John. Uh, John really gives us the purpose statement near the end of the book, much as he does with his gospel. It isn't until chapter 20 when he says that I write these things that you might believe in the Son of God, that you might have eternal life through him. But here in the end of 1 John, at chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John says, I'm writing to believers in order to give to them assurance. I, I want those who are trusting in Jesus Christ Christ to, to have a sense that, that they are held fast by him. And, and so we know that the first century audience to which John writes this are troubled by things that they have seen and heard, things that have gone on even within their churches. There are people who were part of their church, who had been somehow attached to the community, who have now changed in the way they think. They've changed in their views of Christ and they've moved on, if you will. They've, they, they've left. And so they're troubled by these people. They're troubled by those who are coming in with, with sort of new teachings as they're putting forth, new doctrines that, that diverged from what Jesus had taught, from what the apostles had taught. And, and they're faced now with these, these obstacles, these challenges, and it's causing them to question their faith. And John is writing to reassure them that if they have put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, their faith 
should not be shaken. So this morning we're going to be in 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. It's five verses held together by a single commandment. It revolves around the commandment to love neighbor. And this commandment he will describe first as being an old command and then as a new command, but as unchanging and consistent. Despite the fact that it's old and new, there is consistency in terms of the command. And then he's going to stress that the conduct of believers needs to be consistent with this command. And so this passage, I think, in some sense, helps us see consistency as a means by which God gives us assurance. The consistency in verses 7 and 8 of God's command, and then in verses 9 through 11, the, the fact that a believer's conduct being consistent with God's command gives assurance. Most of us value consistency. We like it when, when things are, are, are sort of predictable, stable. If, if you have any following of any sport, you, you like the officiating to be at least consistent. You like the strike zone to be the same for every player or the penalty to be called on one team and the other, and the same on the other team. We like consistency in rules in the home, in the workplace. And, and when things are inconsistent, then they seem to become unpredictable, and we're really not sure what's going to happen next. And so I, I want us to see a little bit of that here in terms of how that gives us assurance. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then we'll talk about this consistency of assurance. 1 John 2, 7 and 8, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So we want to, at this moment, say, John, which is it? Is it old? Is it new? And if it's both, how so? How does that work? What does that mean? And so we'll get to that. But, but notice that he starts this section, first time, I, of, I think five references in 1 John, where he uses the word Beloved, he addresses them with a particular greeting. If your translation says, dear friends, I'm going to encourage you that it's probably better translated as beloved because the, the word is a form of agape. It is the idea that you are an object of love. We, we in our culture don't use beloved as much, and it doesn't necessarily have that significance, and so that's why translators sometimes change it. But it really is to say that I, he is about to give instruction and command about the, the love of brother. That, that's what the, the focal point will be, and we'll see that as we go through it. But I believe he's being very intentional to say at this moment, beloved, that you know that you are an object of God's love, that, that you who belong to him through faith in Christ, you are loved. And, and really, this is the prerequisite. Before he can instruct and command about loving brethren. He needs to make sure that you understand what it is to experience and know the love of God. If you do not understand what it is to be beloved by him, then you're never going to correctly love the people around. You're not going to understand the depth of what that love is. And so I think he's very purposeful here. This isn't just a throwaway sort of greeting. He's saying, beloved, you, you who are identified now as specially loved by God as his own, as belonging to him. Back now to the old and the new part. Part of the background of 1 John, we've talked about this before, but part of the background is the fact that, that there is teaching creeping in 
under the guise of new stuff, new deeper insights, new sort of doctrines. And so 1 John is confronting claims of newness that say, yes, you've, you've heard the old stuff, you've been taught in that, We've got some, some new things to tell you about Jesus, new things about salvation and, and following after Jesus. And so there's this emphasis, sort of Gnostic is the word that we use to describe this, this teaching at the late first century, the idea of knowledge and, and new knowledge about Jesus. And so they are packaging lies, essentially denying that Jesus is God in flesh, taking the fundamental heart of the gospel as to the identity of Jesus Christ and gutting that and saying Jesus is either a, a spirit being, manifests himself in some way to you, or he's, he's just a man, a very good man, and in fact a man who, who reached an exalted state of wisdom, of knowledge, and, and, and that's why he has this this presence and, and impresses so many people by his teaching because of this high level of spiritual knowledge. So the, the follow-on to that is, if, if you believe that's who Jesus is, just a man who sort of attained to this level, then the teaching becomes, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you attain to that level. You get this deeper sense of wisdom, this deeper knowledge. You think deeply about spiritual things, and, and, and that's how you grow in him. So get new insights about Jesus. As believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that knowing truth is important. Knowledge of, of sound doctrine is important. So we don't dismiss knowledge, but we also understand that knowledge in Scripture is always tied to conduct. You are taught this and you know this so that it would shape you, so that it would change your heart and your affections and your actions as a result. And so you, you keep knowledge and conduct tied together. What's happening in, at the time John is writing this is you've got teachers who are separating the two, disconnecting knowledge and conduct to the point, as we saw in chapter one, where they're saying, you don't really have to worry about this thing called sin, that, that, that I'm not a sinner, that's just my flesh. That's just conduct. So what I say, what I do, that's all sort of irrelevant. What's important is, is my spirit going deeper? Am I gaining in wisdom and knowledge? Because if I'm doing that, then, then I'm good. Then I'm sort of self-actualizing and, and my conduct really doesn't matter. As you listen to that, you may be thinking, there's really nothing new under the sun. It, it's packaged differently with different sorts of, of language, but the idea that conduct doesn't matter and just being spiritual is okay is still as common today. That The idea that I can be spiritual, that I can have sort of generic faith, even if it's completely disconnected with the person of Jesus Christ, even if it has nothing to do with holiness or righteousness or any kind of law from my creator, that all of that conduct stuff is irrelevant as long as I'm just sort of spiritual in some way. But, but these sorts of teachings gain steam both in the first century and in the 21st century because people are often fascinated by that which sounds new, that which sells itself as we've got some interesting new deeper insights into spirituality than, than what you've had. You've got the old fashioned sort of stuff that you got from your parents. We've got the, the newer stuff. And, and, and that sort of mentality sells, that, that this is kind of an evolved sort of religion, uh, the, the latest fad. And so it, it purports to, to tell people something that they didn't know before particularly when you can separate out conduct. 
especially when you can say, I want some kind of religion, some kind of spirituality that doesn't care about what I do, doesn't care about what I say, so that I can do as I please, I can say what I want, I can treasure what I want, and that doesn't really matter. I'm still spiritual in some way. Uh, so this is really no different here in the 21st century, and that's the appeal that's, that's taking place. It, it really, where it strikes us and where we see it is that one of the verses that you looked at last week with Bob was in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, when it says, whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. To which, that, that, that's not one of those verses that we typically are memorizing and bringing up in conversation with people, because we know that the cultural sensitivity to that is that's harsh. Ouch. You're calling me a liar because I'm not obeying the, the commandments of God. That's not a nice thing to say. And, and people would rather be less black and white, uh, less it's this or that, less light and, and darkness. Our, our culture is fine with being consistent on the spiritual front if it has to do with loving and kind and all that. But when it comes to sin and wrath and those sorts of things, we, 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 culture doesn't want to be quite as black and white on that. And yet Hebrews 13, 8, 9 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we, we often quote that, but it goes on to say, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Understand that because Jesus is the same, because the gospel is still the same, then, then these things are unchanged. So when, when, when someone comes along with new insights and, and new ideas, then be careful. And, and so that's why when verses 7 and 8, when he's using this language of new commandment, old commandment, I'm writing to you an old one that we've had from the beginning, it's also new. Before we say, oh, he's contradicting himself here, need to understand that he's speaking to a particular culture and setting that has heard this kind of language before, is hearing from people saying, no, we really have something new and you're stuck in the old. And he's saying, no, let me show you how the old is consistent with the new. We know that the command that he's talking about is love of brother, and we know that we'll see it in verses 9 through 11, because he says it in verses 9 through 11. It has to do with love of brother. And in fact, he uses in, the, in, in 2 John 5, he says in 2 John 5, I now ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, same kind of language, that we love one another. So the command is to love one another. First, two senses in which it is old. He, he says this is an old commandment that we have had from the beginning. What does he mean by that? How is it old? First, in the sense of chronology, if you will, I can go back to God's law and I can find this commandment there. If you go to Leviticus chapter 19, there's a whole discussion in Leviticus 19 of how we are to treat other people, how we're to not oppress the poor, how we're not to deal falsely with other people, how we're not to oppress people, we're not to curse people. And in all of that, he summarizes Leviticus 19 in verse 18 and says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So don't mistreat your brother, don't oppress, don't curse your brother, rather love your neighbor as yourself. And so we go all the way back to God's law and John can point back and say, God has said, this is the way it is to be from the beginning. It is an old command. But there's another sense, really the key in verse seven, that, that to his audience when he says, you 
had this command from the beginning to his audience. You, you have had is perhaps a better way of saying that's imperfect. So it, it, it's a, uh, you've had this, but it has this sort of ongoing effect. He's telling these believers that this old command you have had since the beginning. Well, what's my beginning? It's my beginning as a believer. It's my, my beginning as somebody who began to walk in the light. It's the moment that I was saved. It's the moment that God graciously redeemed me from my sin and I entered into fellowship with him. And so what he's saying is, since that time, since you started walking with Christ, this ethical responsibility to love your neighbor has been yours. It, it is something that is not new. It, it is a command that has been upon you from the moment that you started following Jesus Christ. At the beginning of your fellowship with God, when you started walking in the light, you were given the command to love the brethren. At, at no point in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ were you ever free of the responsibility to love your brethren. That, that command has always stood. It is, it is part of when you come to faith in Christ, when, when he graciously delivers you and the spirit takes up residence in you and you are in Christ, there becomes this conviction, scriptural-based conviction that says, I'm to love the people that are around me. And he says that that command has been yours from the beginning. And so to his first century readers, what John is saying is, I know you're hearing from people who say that your conduct does not matter. That, that you can do as you please, whether or not you love others is a matter of personal choice, whether or not you despise other people is purely up to you, it's okay. And, and, and they're, they're also telling you that I'm, I'm heaping burdens on you, I'm making up rules and laws for you. And John says, nonsense. What, what I am telling you now as far as a, a, a following after Christ and having assurance of your faith, this command that I'm telling you, you've had it since the very start. This is what you have always been called to as a believer in Jesus Christ is to love the brethren. So in, in a moment when we see in verses 9 through 11, John says despising a brother is contrary, incompatible with walking in the light. His point is this is not some new command. I'm not adding some burden or some sort of work that you must do. I am calling you to what Jesus calls you to, that if you are a follower of his, you are now empowered to love those around you. So then why does John say at the same time, it is a new commandment? Just as there's two senses in which it was an old commandment, two in which it's a new commandment. The first one is the obvious one. It's because Jesus called it a new commandment. John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Again, we should pause at this moment and go, well, wait, Jesus, this was already said in Leviticus 19, 18. So in a sense, it's not, uh, it's an old commandment, but he says a new commandment I have given you. Why is that? Because now in Christ, that command has been fulfilled perfectly. We have now in Christ seen a realization of that command that we've never before seen on earth. No, no man has ever done this before perfectly. Jesus comes and Jesus loves his own to the uttermost. He loves perfectly. And so he now gives to us a display of this kind of brotherly love, the likes of which man has previously not even imagined. And now Jesus tells his disciples, you are to follow this example, that what I have done, now you are to do. So you even 
you even now have a prototype of what this looks like to, to follow, what it means to, to love others, do it as I have loved you. That's what the, the grace is empowering you to do. All right, so it's new because Jesus and his fulfillment of it, and he says that, but also if you look at the last part again of verse eight, it says, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's take that last phrase first. He's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ changing everything. When, when, when Christ comes into the darkness, Christ is the light of the world and, and, and Christ now brings the true light into the world. And so while Satan and his realm of darkness are real. We've talked about this before, this, the, the realm of darkness that we, we continue to live in. It is passing. That, that stage, that phase, if you will, is moving further and further towards its own end. It will be ended by God. And, and yet, the light that has come through Jesus Christ, that shines and it continues to get brighter until the day in eternity when it is the, the light of God that lights up the, the, the kingdom. We are, we are walking completely in his light. And so the light has already begun shining with the coming of Jesus and the defeat of sin and death is inevitable. Amen? That, that is our hope and that's what he's pointing to here when he says that the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. But, but here in this verse... Here's the second aspect of, of why this is a new command, because he says this is true, this new commandment, in him and in you. We know Jesus is the light of the world, but in Matthew 5, 14, what did Jesus say to his disciples? You are the light of the world, right? He says to those who are followers, you now go out into the world and you shine forth the, the light of Christ. You shine forth the love and the light of Christ. And so the light of Jesus Christ now shines through his people. So when verse 8 says it's true in him and in you, the commandment was realized in Christ, but is now being fulfilled in all who profess Jesus Christ as Savior. That the love of brethren is now being lived out through us. We are the embodiment of this commandment. And so the old law stands, but it's got this whole new quality to it. It has been shown to us to be lived out in perfection in Jesus and now implanted in our hearts by Jesus so that we can now live as those who love brethren. And so before he even gets to the issue of conduct as believers and whether or not we're loving brethren, he is seeking to establish this. Beloved, you who are loved by God, God's love has been poured out through Jesus Christ and he has modeled it for us and it is in him and now in you. And so when you are faced with those who say they've got a, a new take, on, on a biblical command that the church for thousands of years has, has believed and understood in a certain way, or they say they found some new meaning or we've evolved past a command, be careful. Be careful when, when people say that, that, that there's some new meaning to an old command, especially, especially when the new meaning seems to nullify or, or water down con conduct. Because that's almost inevitably where it always goes. 
You, you can do this now. This is permissible now, is sort of the mantra. And when, that, when, when conduct suddenly becomes insignificant, then you can know we're right back where we were in the first century when John is speaking to the church and saying, no, it, it is. This old command is a new command, and it's still relevant. It's still consistent. And so when the argument that you hear now is, well, that's not sin. That's just talking about some unusual first century practice or some really narrow category of bad behavior and we've evolved and figured it out beyond that, be careful. Because John is about to confront conduct by professing Christians and he prefaces it with this instruction about consistency. Essentially he says, this is what God's law said. This is is what the Father spoke when he revealed it through Moses and Leviticus. This is what Jesus affirmed and fulfilled and lived out, and this is what the apostles have continued to teach. And so therefore, this this continues to stand. You should abide in this, and you should obey it, and God is empowering you to do so. You and I are still to love our neighbor as self, and that's where John now moves into conduct. Look at verse 9. We'll read 9 through 11. 1 John 2, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Before we delve into this this conduct piece, you got to keep remembering as we go through this, when I said a couple weeks ago, 1 John 1, 5, that verse 5 is sort of the, the statement that sort of you underline as the lead in to the rest of what he's going to deal with because 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then everything sort of flows from out of that. Remember that? His point was, God is pure. And so if we're going to talk about fellowship with God, walking with God, eternal life with God, having communion with God, before we talk about any of that, We must start with God. We must start with the person and character of God, and God is light, and in him there is no blemish, there is no sin, there is no hint of darkness. He is perfect. And therefore, if we start at that point, and we know our own hearts well enough, we know he must have to act to do something to make a way for us to have fellowship with him. He must graciously do something to initiate the way for you and I to be able to walk in his light. The one who is light must somehow do something to those who are in darkness in order to change their hearts, those who are sinners and defiled by the world's darkness, so that we can enter into fellowship with him and walk in the light. And that's, that's friends, why Jesus Christ came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. To, to, to provide that way that the one who is light and holy and transcendent now would, would bring near to himself those who are by nature opposed to him and sinners. And, and so that's why then this, the, 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 this light and darkness, walking in the darkness, walking in the light, what, what he's saying here is if before Christ, before you were saved, you persistently walked in the darkness, whether you intentionally thought you were or not, 
whether you thought you were shaking your fist at God or not, what you were doing was not for the glory of God. You were not living for the glory of God. You were not living to worship God. You were living for self, to, to please self. And so you were walking in darkness. And what he's saying is to persist at walking in darkness is completely incompatible with fellowship with God. You, you cannot remain on that same path of, of not glorifying, not honoring, not worshiping God and just living for self. And so to make that abundantly clear, John uses the simplest, clearest, most convicting of points by referring to the commandment that says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Well, that's, that's a harsh one, John. Um, to hate the brother is to still be in darkness. Unmistakable language. If you say you have fellowship with God, and yet you remain in a state of hating your brother or sister, then you are in darkness. In order to have assurance that I am walking in the light, I need to have conduct that is consistent with God's command. Now, let's, let's be honest here. Here's where we want to play with words a bit. Verses 9 and 11 both use that term, hates his brother. And don't we at some point want to say, whoa, John, hate is a really strong word. Hate, I mean, that, this, grouchy old, this grouchy neighbor I got, he hates everything. He, he's, he's a hater. He's just angry and mad. That guy hates. But me, I got people I don't like. I got people I don't get along with really well. I got people who if I'm walking down the street and, and I think, oh, I think I'm going to cut up this street because I really don't want to get in a conversation with this fool. <laughs> but I don't hate him. That's what we want to do. We want to somehow find that middle ground. The, the problem is we're seeing it in, in biblical terms over and over again, and John keeps using it. Scripture speaks of light and darkness, right? doesn't speak of light darkness, and then gray. You know, it's it, that, that ground where I, I really like this area of sin. I really find it hard to give up. And so I'm, I'm in the gray, sort of. I'm like chair gray here. I don't know what that gray is called, but I, I'm, I'm in that sort of realm. Well, the, the problem is it, it's really clear in saying there is darkness and light. And if we are walking in the light, there will still, because he's already said this in chapter one, don't, don't go claiming that you are without sin, that you are somehow sinless. And so even walking in the light, there are still times I'm going to step into the darkness, but the, the difference here is the response is, I repent of that. I, I acknowledge that I shouldn't be here, this is wrong, and I turn from it, and I ask God, and, and even perhaps ask brothers and sisters to help me avoid that temptation and not walk in that darkness. That's the difference in the response, is that I may walk in the light, I may step in the darkness, but I, I move away from that, I repent of it. I don't settle in saying, well, I'll, I'll just walk at dusk when I can still sort of see my way but kind of be hidden and, and, and still do what I, I kind of want to do. There is darkness and light, and so that's the whole point here when he says in verse 10 that this one who walks in the light has no cause for stumbling because he is walking in the light. He's not being blinded in some way. He's not losing his way because he understands what it is to walk in the light. And so that's what it is with love and hate. To love your brother 
And, and, and this, you know, we can look all over scripture at what it means to love brethren, but John's going to develop this for us as we go on. This won't be the last time that he deals with love of brethren. This becomes a, a, a central theme that runs through 1 John. So we'll talk more about it. But essentially, to love your brethren is to, to, to sacrifice for that person. It is to serve that person. It is to be forbearing and, and patient with that person. It is to serve in some way for, for their needs, to love that person is to speak truth to that person. And so that um, even a word of exhortation or correction, it, it can be an act of love if my intent is to help that person be more like Christ and walk in the light. And so I exhort and I, and I encourage. So there may even be hard things that have to be said. To not love your brother is not neutral. It's not sort of safe area in between. In chapter three, verse 17, just by way of example, John says, if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The implication of that statement, it is, is, it is hateful. If indeed I see clearly two things, my brother who is in need and my capacity to meet that need. And I see those two and it says, I close my heart. I make a decision to say, I'm not doing anything about this. I, I, I'm, I'm not getting involved in this. I don't care in, in any way to, to do anything to help. Jesus also, commands, and just important here, he's, he's talking about love of brethren. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourself, commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But, but the, the gist here for John, as he's dealing with these believers in their churches, is start at the most foundational level for us as believers, namely loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who, who mutually profess faith in Jesus Christ and those who call themselves brothers and sisters. That, that's why the New Testament provides the process in Matthew 18 of, of dealing with a brother or sister with whom you've become unreconciled with. If a brother or sister offends you in some way, if, they, if in your mind they've sinned against you, there's a process given in Scripture for pursuing that person in love with the goal of restoration, of trying to bring the relationship back to wholeness. But that's the, the call to walk in the light, is to love, to serve, to put in the, the hard work sometimes of, of sacrificing for that, that person and caring for them. I, I was listening to Christian radio yesterday and an ad came on for a, a popular teacher who was advertising for his podcast and they played a snippet of his teaching in which he said, and, and I, I went back and checked this on Facebook, so I'm taking the quote from Facebook in case I didn't hear it exactly right on the radio. So if you hear the same commercial and say, you didn't quote him exactly right, he did quote it this way in Facebook. If you don't let go of the wrong people, the right people won't show up. If you don't let go of the wrong people, the right people won't show up. So essentially the message is get those wrong people out of your life. Now, here's what came to my mind. Mark chapter two, Jesus is in the home of Levi, the tax collector. Tax collectors, not popular in, in first century culture, considered tyrants who steal people's money. And, and it says specifically in Mark chapter two that many tax collectors and sinners joined them for that meal. And when the Pharisees and scribes came as onlookers of this whole scene of Jesus with all of these terrible tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus' disciples, if he doesn't let go of the wrong people, the right people won't show up. Not exactly. I know I'm paraphrasing there. 
But that's essentially what the, the, the scribes and Pharisees say. You keep hanging with these folks, you ain't gonna get us folks. You want the right kind of people, you get rid of those kind of people. And, and I say that because there's, there's an emphasis here on and, and what Jesus is teaching and what he is modeling is this love for brethren. And yes, let me just be really clear here. There are warnings in scripture about not having fellowship with darkness. There are cautions about casting your pearls before swine. There are people who are so foolish and so blind in their sin that they may be bad company that corrupts good character or they may be evil abusers who will harm you or others. I want to be clear about all that. First John will even warn us of the presence of those kinds of people even within our own midst, within the body. So I'm not suggesting a naive kind of love here, but I am suggesting that our problem for the most part isn't with those folks. Our problem for the most part, my problem for the most part, is doing John 13, 34. Beloved, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. When it comes right down to it, that's the place where we struggle to love others like Jesus has loved us, to, to prayerfully ask God for help to grow in this area, just as the first century church is called to do. That's why John keeps circling back to this area of brotherly love, because he knows that in any close community, there will be problems. We, we won't all see everything eye to eye. We won't all get along on every point. There will be fractures and there will be offenses and, and, and there will be disagreements and there will be things that need humility and repentance and grace in order to bring people back together. He knows that there are those who profess faith in Christ who simply don't feel like loving and serving others. That, that, that they need to be exhorted in this area, that they're not making it a priority, that they would rather pull back in their own little world and do their own little thing. That, that, that they would... They'll love their phone as much as Christ loved them because that's, they're just going to sit and stare at their phone. Just leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered by all of you and having to, to love you and serve you. And that's where our struggle is because we still struggle with remaining sin. And so the, the command to love brother and sister really reminds us, first of all, that this is the Savior's command from the beginning this is, this is one we've had since the start of walking with Jesus. It's part of walking with Jesus is, is loving our neighbor, but also it is a reminder of our need for his grace and his empowerment and, and the, the basic message of the gospel, of, of repentance and forgiveness that, that we need on a daily basis to love others. What, what John's really doing here in this first salvo on brotherly love is, is working within the purpose of his book, Consistent with that purpose, he's saying, if you profess faith in Christ, and if you are at all unsure of where you are, and, and you're being battered by other teachings, and you are seeking assurance of your faith, one of the surest ways to know that, that he has saved you and is changing you is for you to walk consistent with his commands. It's for you to say, if this is what he has said to do, then please, God, give me grace and help me to walk in that, that I might live a life that is consistent with what you say. Because where there are clear statements of God's will, like this one, continue to love your brothers and sisters, if you are resisting that, 
If you find yourself in a place where you are trying to explain away why you don't do that, why this person in particular you will not do that with, if you find yourself in that place where you're constantly struggling with trying to, to explain away not loving a brother or sister, or you have a break in a relationship with a brother or sister and you are not willing to pursue reconciliation and you're willing to let it fester, then, then my, my caution to you is to take this seriously. Because that's what he's speaking to because the, the heart of the warning in these verses is there is blindness. That, that walking in, in darkness he equates with blindness. And I know that's Sounds obvious, but he's going to, later in this chapter, speak about people who had some connection to a local body. They were there. They sang the songs. They maybe put money in the offering box. They maybe went through these motions. And then, and then suddenly they started down this path away from the commands, away from any kind of obedience, away from close fellowship with the body, and they moved further and further away and kept walking until, he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because what, what his point is, they were never actually out of the darkness in the first place and never really certain of where they were going. They were walking and maybe following others, but ultimately it, it became obvious when they finally stumbled and fell away completely and had nothing to do anymore with Christ and with his church. That's why John now says with urgency, look now at your life. Consider your conduct now. And one of the ways you can consider that is, do you love brothers and sisters? Not just in word, but in deed? Do, do you seek to serve them? Do you care for them? Do you try to reconcile with them? Are your relationships with brothers and sisters generally in good repair or are there ones that need work, need addressing? Because if you're eager to have full assurance of walking in the light, then walk in the light. Love your brother and sister. Ask God for help in this to give of yourself and your time and your energy to people around you. Ask God to show you where you may need to repent. I, I'll finish with this. I've, I've mentioned John 13, 34 several times. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The next verse says, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Fundamentally, we always look at that, and rightly so, as the testimony of the church. That One of the things people should see if they're outsiders, if they're unbelievers, one of the things they should see is this unique kind of community that serves and loves one another. But I'll, I'll paraphrase that verse for purposes of 1 John here and say, by this you will know that you are my disciple, that you love one another. That you can have assurance as well that you are my disciple if indeed you are loving one another. God is eager to give that assurance to his people because if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, remember where we started, beloved, objects of God's love, you who have had God's love poured out on you through Jesus Christ, beloved, walk in the light, love brother and sister, serve them, care for them, and do not persist in walking in the darkness. Your father longs to strengthen you to demonstrate your consistency in conduct by loving others because he wants to give you the grace to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you thankful that the, the, the premise here, the, the starting point in all this is your love for us. 
Lord, while we were yet sinners, Scripture says Christ died for us. Lord, help us to see that for all it is. We, we've talked about this word hate and help us to recognize that apart from Christ, we, we hated you. We hated your ways. We hated your, your love for us. Whether we stated it in as many words, the fact is we, we disregarded it. We showed disdain towards you and towards your love. We showed a self-centered sort of arrogance. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for a love like that that would reach out to those in darkness, that would rescue those in darkness and draw us into your light, that would change the hearts of rebels and enemies and cause them to, to become those who would follow after you. And Lord, now for... For those here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, help us in these areas where perhaps your word has brought conviction this morning, where there is a, a desire to, to just want to pull back from the brethren, to just want to be um, on my own, not, not engaging, to just me and my phone, just sort of away from everybody. Lord, help us to repent that sort of attitude that would isolate us from other Christians. And help us to not simply stop doing the wrong, but, but then to engage as servants, sacrificially. Help us to be a body of believers that, that actively love one another through deeds and in words. Lord, I, I pray that there would be no one here this morning who would see this as... Um, uh, sort of a good deed salvation. If you simply show kindness and love people that, that you will be saved. Lord, we, we believe the heart of all of this is a savior who came and demonstrated the ultimate display of love when he who was sinless took on himself our sins so that he might bear in his body the wrath that our sin deserves and that by taking the full brunt of the punishment that we rightfully deserve, he is able to offer to us graciously a, a forgiveness and a grace and an ability to come before you now and call you Father. And Father, we, we pray that you would accomplish your work in and through us. I pray that where you have provoked the conscience of a brother or sister on this area of assurance, I pray that they would reach out for encouragement and for prayer and and, and be transparent, Lord, I pray that we would be a, a, a church where, where we would graciously understand that we have come as broken people, all of whom have pasts that we are not boasting about, um, and, and, and that in our brokenness and our transparency, we would find comfort and love and care and words of truth, that we would experience your love through the hands and feet of our brothers and sisters. May we be that kind of body of believers. And all these things we ask in the name and for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.